Okay, hi everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome. So excited to see you. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Brandon Som. I'm a poet and a teacher here in the literature department and uh, so excited uh, to, to be here with you all today. Um, I, uh, so excited that Ani Fox is here to read. Um, our graduate student, Zach, is going to uh, introduce Ani Fox in a second. Um, and uh, I just want to let you know about the, the writing series, this glorious posters that you see up. Um, coming up this, this Friday, actually, kind of a different uh, time, place, uh, space and time moment. Uh, Type Wee is reading Friday, May 5th uh, at 12 p.m. in the, the Lotus Huerta room. And uh, don't really want to miss this. This is a great opportunity. Uh, an amazing uh, writer and artist this Friday at noon. And then also coming up next, uh, May 17th, next Wednesday. Next Wednesday? Is that two Wednesdays? Two Wednesdays, two Wednesdays from now. Uh, Raquel uh, Gutierrez is coming to read. Very exciting event. Um, don't miss that. And then we close out our, our uh, amazing quarter here with two uh, MFA readings. One uh, from our wonderful MFA students here uh, in the literature department. Uh, Wednesday, May 24th, the first year of the phase we'll be reading, and then uh, at the end of the month, May 31st, our graduating MFA student reading will happen. So, really awesome opportunity to see some really great new writing. Um, okay, so I'll invite Zach up now for the introduction. Thank you. When I say uh, Annie Fox is here. That is a statement based in speculation. Uh, we have only just been introduced. So anybody could walk up to me and say they're Annie Fox. How then can I assert his presence? Well, I see him. Hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, and yet, if we've never met before, uh, to what do I attribute this visual recognition? Well, a photo, like on this lovely and informative poster. And not only that, but it tells me where he's been. For instance, he was born in San Diego. It tells me where he lives in Luxembourg City. And what he's done. He's written a novel, The Autumn War, and uh, lives in Luxembourg, and he's studied uh, history. With that information, I can, to some degree of accuracy, predict where he'll be next week without confessing to being a stalker. <laughs> Mr. Fox has said that literature should be fun, especially speculative fiction. And it is this kind of imagining of being able to look into the past and project into the future, seeing how things tend to go, that is part of the fun of speculative fiction how to sneak profound ideas under a canopy of action and adventure to insert the philosophical into the fun. Mm. Fun seems to be a prerogative of Mr. Fox's fiction. And it's a way of hiding and softening the terrible pummeling it takes, the mind takes, being exposed to ideas. <laughs> so, uh, I hope we've all been marinating beforehand. I'd like to welcome Mr. Fox. All right, so uh, for those of you who are hiding in the back, I'll just let you know that before I came here, I purchased a very limited supply of chocolate that will only go to the people who are relatively close up front. So the incentive for those of you who are only here to fulfill your mandatory requirements are, if you're near me and I can see you and I think your questions are relevant, interesting, or I just kind of like who you are today, um, you will get big cash prizes, right? <laughs> also, um, I've been teaching for a lot of years, so I can see you people in the back, right? <laughs> I taught special ed, I've taught college, um, I was a coach for the Princeton Review for 14 years and a curriculum designer. Um, I am 
so we had the privilege of George R. R. Martin, um, who is a you know a vague unknown talent in speculative fiction, but uh, come to to, to uh, Professor Springer's class yesterday and, and chat things up. And other than being like the Yo quiero Taco Bell dog, going yes, yes, that's exactly right, George, preach. Um, the other thing that happened is he talked about how there are two, in fact, kinds of writers: those who write full time and they 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 get paid for it right like george and then people who have day jobs right and so for me i want you to know i'm a day job writer and i'm 46 years old been doing an awful lot of things that inform my book but this is uh one of the paths you can take right so this is not the first novel i wrote this is the first novel i got published uh and i'm going to read a couple different pieces from it uh and those of you who wish to move now for chocolate, now is your last chance. I see a, an open seat here, a couple of seats there. I see some open seats over there. I see these people already planning on, like they're already scanning the table for the chocolate, right? Do you guys not know who the Taco Bell dog is? It was one of the greatest commercial campaigns, apparently, of the, the 90s. Um, it's complicated on the border. It is. Yes. <laughs> And terrifying. Yeah. And and we'll and that's the other thing you'll quickly see, which is that um, everything that so there's a belief that um, almost a Zen proverb that you know the greatest of talent is no talent, the greatest of mind is no mind, and what should happen with a narrative if you've done it right, right? And there's no guarantee. My my seven year old father let me know he wasn't entirely convinced. Um, is you should read it and not realize that you've just been given ideas or thoughts or that there's any construction. It should effortlessly flow, right? And so one of the things that that um, you will hear or not hear is the uh, you know the ideas embedded underneath the fun, and the ideas embedded underneath the uh, use of things like Taco Bell commercials and and other stuff because we could deconstruct you know, Derrida style, all of that stuff. And th there's a complexity. But again, I'm also a child of, uh, you know, California, where, where Taco Bell was how you measured the number of miles you'd passed. So um, let me read a little something. Keep in mind there's chocolate at stake here. So um, now uh, I can't see a damn thing past about 10 feet without my glasses. And it looks like it's 440-something. So, yeah, I can sort of see that one, too. All right, so I'll read a little bit. Um, these were hand-selected by my loving family who told me, read one about the helicopter and read the other one about the gaming nerds. So uh, and you're saying to yourself, all right, this is the deep Derrida-focused thing. Yeah, and there's a helicopter. All right, so... Uh, the only context, no context for you. Um, the only context I'll give you is they've just blown up a very large building in Manhattan. For those of you who didn't read any of the blurb, this is a cyberpunk of the now novel that involves a great deal of explosions, car chases, helicopters, guns. The main hero is a uh, former uh, Soviet special forces guy whose name is completely unpronounceable who's also uh, a victim of genetic engineering and, you know, lingering effects of the Holocaust. But, you know, probably no, no subtext there. All right, so, I came to with a woman's face looking me over. She had cropped black hair and very green eyes. She wasn't quite beautiful, but I'd always found her appealing. It helped that she was a fellow Ukrainian. Right? It took me a few minutes to realize that she weren't uh, to realize she wore an orange jumpsuit and was the pilot who had guided us aboard. Hmm. Somebody had been eating their Wheaties. Nadia, my voice came back uh, as a croak. Nadia Karkova, the mother of the famed Karkova sisters, gave me a rare smile. Then she spoke my name with patronymic and very soft Ukrainian. I gave her a rare smile back and felt warm fingers grip my right hand. Then we turned to ice. I felt before I saw the immobilizing splint on my left arm. Dislocated, not broken, she gave me the inventory in Russian. Bruises across your entire spine, several cuts, eardrum on your right side looks dicey, and you've got a piece of shrapnel on your right ankle that appears to be stuck to the bone. 
no bleeding. In the cockpit, I saw George make some adjustments and the bird started to coast down towards the surface. The radar was lit like a furnace with glowing coals. They had at least 30 aircraft up hunting us, some of them mock-capable fighters. Without looking back, he sported another thumbs up. They'll handle it. Fair enough. I looked for some cold weather gear and Nadia, seeing what I was looking for, handed me a bundle of coats and spare blankets. We, balk- we walked back towards the Zodiac. When I dumped my gear, I turned and met Pina's, uh, Pina's uh, clear, dangerous eyes. Let's be clear. Hans and company mean to kill you all. They won't have made a move without planning this down to the finest detail. You're not dying today. It shouldn't matter much. The syndicate, the international, most of the smaller agencies and mafias and such, they're about to be exterminated. Then leaders and governments and oligarchs. He means to take it all. For him, this is the end of days, Armageddon. She frowned. Ragnarok is just the Norse apocalypse. I s- no, I motioned to Nadia, who was prepping the boat. Whatever she slipped me uh, into me while I was unconscious, it started working. My pain eased up, and little bots, slow and steady, would keep the inflammation and infection in bay. It's the end of the calendar, the end of an era. In abstinence scenario, you all die. The world is enslaved and one God remains to rule us all. In mine, we start anew, smaller and cleaner, with a fertile world cleansed of riffraff. Hans means to kill you too. I gave her a curt bow. Thus I have saved your lives and gotten you to a place where you can make your own decisions about retaliation. She was telling me she knew I'd come for more than an interview. Because it serves your purposes? She really didn't understand why I'd done it. Maybe she did need someone like me. Littman beside her seemed equally nonplussed. Likely, I'd never see them again. It's like whoever Roger really was uh, told you. I'm pretty simple deep down, incorruptible. It offends me uh, to have killed you when I can save you. It violates my sense of honor, my purpose to let Gutlich prevail. The bird leveled out, and I could see we were a few meters above the chop. I motioned to the raft. In a minute, I'm taking this out on the water. Somewhere a few miles from here, I have a fishing trawler rigged for a long haul. You can come or you can stay. George, Nadia, and their team will be leaving shortly and would in all likelihood be delighted to sell you this Osprey for... Nadia gave me, uh, gave them a hard stare. Five million euros. Damn, that was painfully cheap. Five million euros for each of them. Or jump. We have chutes and inflatables. Your call. Pina cocked her head and that incandescent smile crossed her lips. Her eyes stayed cold and deep. They won't come with you? My people are out and will stay out. I interviewed. They didn't. I waved at the cabin with my good hand. They consider today a bit of fun for old time's sake. I left off the threat that if Pina or Harv tried to pull them back in, I'd make sport of wiping out their organization. They knew, and I knew they knew. Just calling off my hunt long enough to save their lives seemed overly generous. Lippman rose and started looking over the remaining gear. The special forces had loaded the tilt rotor as as if hunting for bear. He found much that pleased him. His two shooters followed, a pair of tigers carefully avoiding Nadia. Ah, so it had been a near-lethal incident. Perhaps Pina had tried to take charge, or one of her men, which meant that Nadia would kill them out of hand uh, if I left them aboard. That complicated things somewhat. Harv caught Pina's eye. What's the word, boss? She turned to me. If I come with you, what then? And here it was. Was she really asking me about my commitment to her fight? Would I throw in with her? Or was she? Um, In my prior days as an operative, I'd always been the underdog. Outmanned, outgunned, often with insignificant resources. Just me. And it carved my mind into a tactical scalpel of sorts. I know my limits. I'm no good at the grand game. I'm no Mycroft or Moriarty. In my own way, I'm so much more dangerous than they. I'm the spoiler, the unpredictable seat-of-the-pants wrecking crew that shoots that one guy you needed to open the safe to do the thing that launches the other thing. Why had Section 22 gone off after us then and there? If Roger, if Section 22's imposter had wanted me dead, he could have had me shot at any time in the prior month. Logic dictated that he simply didn't want, uh, that, that he simply didn't merit me a threat. So, fact, Section 22 had not planned on killing me today. I was part of a package deal, a sort of Laniapi. Why? Why rule me out? Maybe for the same reason no one expected me to come. I had folded my cards and walked away from the game without a peep for so long I'd been forgotten. 
and only returned because random tragedy had screwed up a perfectly good plan to never work again. That was it. In chaos theory, there's a notion that random things happen because the system needs to move forward towards order. Really? So the universe just threw a big wrench in the works of uh, whatever larger plans Gutlich and Sen Valentin were playing out between themselves. Pure random chance. No one had figured me into their plans. Not Pina, not Hans, not our enemies or allies. I had done something surprising and been at the right place at the right time. Or if you're a religious soul, then fate had lent her fickle hand and pushed me right smack into the middle of the largest covert war since the Berlin blockade. More, yeah. Logically, we'd be counted as dead as, until they could dig out the bodies. I'd seen the lighter radio hit the ballroom floor, and the trooper's body would yield Leflambe's tracker, both close enough to be plausibly linked. Having worked crime scenes, especially bombings, I know no one would second-guess the evidence, not even the ultra-paranoid Cassandra. We had a few days' time to do something before San Valentin or Gutlicht, or both of them, figured out the truth, or didn't. All we had to do was not make noise, and we were ghosts. What did I want to do? I was free in a way I had perhaps been in my adult life. No ties, not even reckoned alive. I could stay dead for a very long time. Long enough to no longer matter to these maniacs. The world was mine, or a version of it. I had money stashed, safe houses, tools, and contacts. I could be out of the game, free to be rich, decadent and bored beyond reason. Ah, and there it was. To thine own self be true. My head felt so damn good, my body singing with adrenaline. Chaos, war, death, and destruction gave me the warm fuzzies. No, not chaos and war. I realized as I stood there, the fractions of seconds crystallizing into coherent understanding, a single true thought, an ugly but enduring truth. Purpose gave me warm fuzzies. How does it go, David Psalm? If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, for darkness is light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. Was I to be the body knit together by the abstinent, or the soul knit together by fate? It's a strange thing to get philosophical in the body of a warbird hounded by enemies, but perhaps this was, after all, King David's point. He, after all, knew a lot about long odds and hiding from assassins. By all accounts, he would carry that damn liar around and strum the thing at inopportune times, um, talking about the Lord God and such. I was just having a quick existential moment by comparison. So Pina was asking, who owned me? I had to be certain about my family, and right now, Hans and team had just blown my best chance for immediate answers. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Come with me and find out. The ship has some amenities, and it's got enough petrol to get us to the Bay of Fundy. I assume from the slant of the sun that George had put us in a race to the north. It would make the Canadians scramble, too. Nothing screamed terrorism as loud as international incident. She smiled, and the cabin felt tighter. You're not going to tell me? Operationally, it's a bad move. I trust you, Harv, the shooters my people left armed. But your goons, clear there, uh, your goons there clearly forgot to say please. I pointed to the, clo the closest gun sole, sporting what was now definitely shaping up into a large facial bruise. So no, Pina, I am most definitely not giving away any more of my plans in front of my potential enemies. Harv pinched his nose with his left hand. With his right, he kept stuffing special ops gear into a duffel. I admire a man with a work ethic. We could be your allies, Spetz. I sighed. I'm not a charitable organization. My patience with this little comedy of errors had run out. Then prove it. I've saved you and your people from certain death twice so far. I've saved um, possibly three times, and on top of that, I've given you some really solid options against your enemies. What the hell happened here? They knew what I meant. All of them were collectively white in the face. Even Pina. Ah. Pina looked me dead in the eye. Something perhaps literal as the cold star showed not one ounce of humanity. I ordered my men to kill you. That was well done. And then she smiled electrically and waited, holding my gaze. Beside me, Nadia gave a kind of snort of amusement and patted my shoulder, handing me a waterproof packet. By the heft, I knew what it was likely my PSS with kit and ammo. Good. I'd need that. 
Harv knew better. Pina nodded slowly and her smile got wider. Harv and Pierre both. My own team were less self-preservational, meaning they tried to execute her impossible order like good foot soldiers without a scintilla of imagination. Pina didn't want me dead, certainly not now, yet she had just tried to have me killed. Correction. She had ordered me to be killed, with Nadia Karkova in the room. Ah, and double ah. So Nadia knew Oslo, perhaps also worked with Oslo, or perhaps with Pina directly since her daughter worked for San Valentin. My people were her people, or vice versa. Could get maddening down the rabbit hole. And my people had stopped her mooks from doing a very stupid thing. But what did blind loyalty really mean? I'd already seen her, her sacrifice a pair of men without a second thought. They'd likely been sleeper agents or enough snooper GPS gear to guide a missile to us, but they'd uh, not been definitively guilty. She took no chances. She had a plan. Maybe all along, we had never left her agenda after all. So, that's your helicopter. As you can see, all about fun. <laughs> now I'll read you a slightly different version, um, and then we, we will talk. Uh, but this is called R&R with A&D. And by the way, the, the beginning of that chapter, for those of you interested, uh, is the world ends with uh, not with a bang, but a bargain. So most of my chapters have some exciting, fantastic um, switch on things. And also, we managed to quote um, David Somm, captain of my captain. So that's, um, ah, I can't remember which poet it is. We'll, we'll ask the poets. Hmm? It's Whitman. Yeah. Hmm? Nelson Mandela. No, I think it was actually Walt Whitman. And Yeah. And then... You said, you said the rest of my own faith. Well, I'm the master of my own faith, the captain of my soul. We'll find out later. That's, that's, from, uh, that's from Nelson Mandela. Well, we'll, we'll double-check that one later. We'll, we'll get the, the large room of fact-checkers on that. And it may be that Nelson Mandela started from Whitman because he predates him. But we'll, well, I'll tell we'll check. Wikipedia tells all. Uh, and then... And you can change it. I, I like that. <laughs> you can insert random and, and less than entirely true facts. I do not yet have a Wikipedia page. Few, please feel free to create one for me. But, you know, make sure that I'm listed as part giraffe or something. Oh, there's a third option. <laughs> William Ernest Henley. You're both <laughs> William Ernest Henley. Yeah. Excellent. The Wikipedia knows all, or Google, the Google. So we also discussed uh, the difference between uh, the end of Ragnarok and the apocalypse. So if you get all that, that was all slipped in under you know them fighting in a helicopter. Okay? So there's, there's ways to slip in literary information into boring old narratives with guns. All right, R&R &R with A&D. I pulled up to the house where Aiden and Declan, no last name, lived. They'd literally erased their last name on a dare, and no one could find the original records. That's how they came to my attention. They were completely outside the world of the web. A couple of computer game-obsessed kidults, a term they had to teach me, which is short for kid-adult, uh, who had almost reached their 30s but had remastered slacking and made it a kind of zen art form. A&D, as they called themselves, uh, funded all their fun by stealing software, mostly computer games and cheat codes, then reselling them via peer-to-peer file-sharing sites. When last I'd asked them, they told me their net worth was something around $15 million in bitcoins. Uh, neither law enforcement nor any agency had ever heard of them, and they lived um, so minimum drag I doubted anyone would ever discover them. The house was an unassuming Adobe McMansion in Flagstaff suburbs. It gleamed in the noonday sun, a taupe and glass monstrosity, little topiary shrubs of some hardy vintage and a lot of gray rocks, arranged in a riverbed meets sculpted chaos kind of look. Someone had probably charged them a fortune to make it look so artless. Besides their xeriscaping, a, a duel of outlandish sports cars stood in the driveway, daring the sun to despoil them. A&D traded up every 18 months for new and better. One was some kind of silver Jaguar speedster, and the other I knew a Lamborghini Aventador, done out in cherry red with bubble bee yellow trim. Each had a plate with their names. Aiden owned the Jag. Declan was apparently now a Lambo kind of guy. The last I'd spoke with him, he'd been tricking out Jeeps for survival in the wilds of Kaibab National Forest, 
mostly jacked into satellite signals and played games from the tricked-out plasma monitor he'd rigged in his Jeep trunk while pretending to camp. I knocked politely and met with, Dude, it's open! I walked into the scene of utter mayhem. The boys were sprawled on the living room floor. Their couch had been tipped, and around them were a series of cushions and blankets. They were playing some violent war game on 12 linked plasma screens that took the entire front wall. On the floor lay the wastes of war. Candy wrappers, some empty and half-empty microwave popcorn bags, something called Doritos collisions that came in a five-pound bag, a bunch of ugly triangles all over the shag carpet. Empty beer cans competed with soda bottles, some little Perrier bottles that looked like hand grenades, and a bottle of Dom Perignon that had been wedged into the fireplace grate like a doorstop. There were several pizza boxes, also pushed to one side, a stray slice of dead pepperoni hanging limply, the last of its kind. The brothers wore headsets over their dark hair with big fuzzy microphones of um, safety orange. Declan, the taller and older brother, kept whispering into his mic, engage left, Python. Aiden was moving some kind of glove controller while punching a set of buttons on his laptop. One of the 12 screens had an overlay with superimposed print, cheats. Whenever Declan wanted a specific cheat, he'd tap his brother on the shoulder and make a rolling motion with his hand. When Aiden reached the right one, he'd motion stop and then order Python or someone named Wild Willy to do something on the left. I watched them for a few minutes, letting them power through some kind of terrorist camp where the guys never noticed their fellows being blown up 10 meters away, and the guards walked back and forth in a set pattern. I was appalled. Aiden looked over at me, smiled, and then did a double take, and his jaw dropped. Whoa, Big Bear! Declan's shooter got blown up. Big Bear? Holy sweet Jesus, the man himself? Guys, I'm out. He pushed a button, and his side of the screens went dead. Aiden followed suit, and was suddenly facing two sets of hungry eyes. They got up, dusted off crumbs and a couple pieces of cheese. Then they started hugging me. I'm not much of a hugging soul, but the brothers A&D subscribe to something they term the bro code, and apparently bros hug other bros. They think I'm some kind of steroid-induced alpha bro, and thus I am expected to deliver epic hugs, which I did. They call me Big Bear. I never understood how bros receive their nickname, but apparently it's supposed to make me delish with the ladies and also alert other bros to my alpha male status. It might also have been something to do with how I met the brothers. Uh, I'd been moving between locations after a blown op and was meeting a gun runner who could get me some IDs and untraceable currency. These two scraggly kids, literally 13 and 15, came in from the raid to hide in the biker bar I'd picked. Behind them came five very large adult males full of liquor and confidence. One of them had a baseball bat. The point of contention being that Aiden had been teabagging the leader of this posse for, some, for six months, fragging him often and then deleting him from the leaderboard. I had no idea what any of that meant, but it sounded petty. I did understand a group of drunk men meant to beat the crap out of a pair of snarky kids over a computer game. Neither brother would back down, and when cornered and about to get the, the snot beat out of them, they were insulting, defiant, and incredibly funny. So funny I found myself laughing. The drunks heard me and made the mistake of involving me in their little dispute. Here's what uh, sold me. Aiden, the 13-year-old kid about to get flattened with a wooden bat for something he started, looked me in the eye and told me, sorry, sir, we didn't mean to get you involved. When I was done, all five were on feeding tubes for six weeks, and the two never walked again. I realized uh, then how much I despised bullies. Once I connected the skinny teenagers with the skilled computer programmers who had erased their own identities, I'd taken a more earnest interest. I helped them out from time to time, got them components, or loaned them some money when the Bitcoin values had plummeted. Early in their career, I pulled some strings and redirected some legal investigations into Pirate Bay clone they'd been running from their basement. Then I sat them down with a hacker friend of mine and gotten them properly educated. To me, these were small favors, the kind never mentioned in the web. To the brothers, I was some kind of avenging angel made of testosterone and liquid assets. I was Big Bear. Aiden stepped back and looked me over. Agent 47 looked. Very modern dude. Like it. Declan nodded, then saw my shoes covered in smoke, dirt, and dark stains. Blood, but I'd hoped they wouldn't recognize the stuff. Bear, you're lots of bad road, bro. You, like, need a shower or something? I did need a shower, maybe even a drink and some food. I just nodded. 
Got some lady troubles or what? I cocked my head. Lady problems? I'm not sure I even knew what these uh, they, those were for a self-declared bro, or what they would consider Big Bear's version. Aiden nodded. Death lady issues. Look at this. You get a sad face. I doubted that I looked anything other than tired, although my neck might look black and blue. I'll get us some white pizzas. Declan motioned me to follow him, then stopped when he saw me staring at the demolished living room. You've never seen a blanket fort before? No. It's called a blanket fort? Dude, you got to get out more. You're like still in the 90s or something. I followed him while Aiden started making rapid-fire calls on a phone made to look like a flying squirrel. He took me upstairs to an outsized bedroom door done out in black marble and chrome, and when he flipped a switch, blue neon. The mirrors cascaded light into a thousand fractal images, creating a strangely fascinating effect. He flipped another switch, and a second set of low lights turned the blue into shades of green and purple. I know, dude. So cool, right? I nodded because Big Bear would and because it was oddly cool outside my imagination to ever want such a thing let alone spend money on it but pleasing nonetheless he brought me some terry cloth towels and showed me a modest closet stacked with clothing i looked it over they were old cast-offs from my prior trips things i told them to donate instead they had them mended laundered and pressed i had clothes and gods they had several pairs of shoes and a proper autumn coat thank you declan he he smiled, punched my arm, and laughed. We knew you'd like it. I showered for a good long while, using the scrubbing gels and a plastic loofah to get the stink of death out of my skin. I shaved using something dubbed a Platinum Five Blade Supermax and didn't slit my own throat. In the mirror, I saw a hungry wolf staring back at me. I had not stopped and really taken stock since the building dropped in New York City. Sure, I had downtime in the Canadian cabin, but I'd been banged up and trying to plan for a future contingency not to mention shot full of drugs while fighting fever and infection. I had not given much thought to what was going on or what had happened. The man I saw staring back at me hurt. Thankfully, Dieter's attack on my, left, uh, on my neck had left an almost indistinguishable mark. The other injuries from small nicks to the weeping hole in my ankle had healed rapidly. My hands, face, and neck were still passable in public. I had acquired a fairly nasty bruise on my right outer thigh and what looked like a scorpion strike on my left calf. The wound had some infection, and when I pushed the hole, it oozed. I applied antibiotic cream and a bandage I had found in the medicine cabinet, wiped down all the cuts with witch hazel and iodine, then washed them off five minutes later. I brushed my teeth. Then I dressed in old clothes from underwear to sport coat, found them a little roomier. I'd lost some bulk in a baker, uh, as a baker and just dropped weight over the last two weeks of running and fighting. I only brought a single Glock, an extra kit, clip, the fighting knife, and the phones, the rest of my gear in the sedan's trunk under a blanket. In this bathroom, surrounded by the play of light and steam, they felt out of place. I felt out of place. Wounded, perhaps. Uncertain. So, two different passages. So let me tell you a couple things. Still last chance to get near the chocolate. Some of you in the back are like, mmm, forbidden chocolate. All right, so here's a story about a guy who is a Spetsnaz assassin running around blowing up buildings. But as we started the discussion about, uh, you know, where things get complicated on the border, he's also the story of a genetically engineered guide fighting the Stasi. And it's also the story of what that really means and the implications of what happens when you create people by violence and then endure violence, right? So you have, in these two passages, a nice thin veneer of fun. It's blanket forts and microphones and bro code and all that stuff that, you know, is you could get out of Maxim, which is where I got it, because I don't know that much about the bro code. But, you know, a couple men's magazines got me roughly that way. Plus, I've had students and... You know, I and I lived in California, so I can do the dude and the bro. I I, I skip gnarly because that's very 1978. But the intention here is to create a narrative that's effortless, to talk about really important things, and to talk about what um, I think we're calling intersectionality, and context, and 
contradictions to create different levels of cognitive dissonance and to tell stories on end. In the first one, you got a sense of them in a helicopter. So uh, there's, you know, they're literally in a stolen helicopter gunship, and you're introduced to a bunch of characters, and there's talking. But it's him telling his side of the story, everything in the narrative of one person. But I'm not just telling one guy's story. I'm telling a bunch of people's stories. Nadia's story, Pina's story, Harv's story. And each of them gets a little piece, but only what he sees, only what he notices. And in a way, you tip the hat to that, because here he comes, the next passage, right? And he shows up at this Flagstaff, Arizona mansion. And what does he pay attention to? Pays attention to the environment. Pays attention to visual cues. Pays attention to symbols of wealth. Pays attention to the position to the cars. And in the beginning, as he starts talking about it, you see him thinking, right? And this is the next narrative context. He's thinking about strategic things. Where are people placed? Where will I need to shoot someone? Why is there a fort? Why are the terrorists not moving, right? He's still in an operational mode. And then we take him, we transition him into a shower. We do the ritual cleansing of water, which is, you know, only about a 10,000-year-old thing that humans have been doing forever. He's in a world that is a, a fractal world of mirrors and light, reminiscent of, uh, if you're really literary, all three levels of Dante's um, comedy, right? Both the Inferno and Purgatory. But reminiscent of rising and falling, right? Changes the lights, changes the colors, Um and then he gets one good look at himself in the mirror, right? Which is sort of a very boring classic trope. But he takes stock for the first time. So you enter this completely cushy world, and there's the simple act of them mending his clothes. I threw these things away. They were of no value to me. And his family, guys outside of this horrible world where everyone's butchering each other and blowing things up, have done the incredibly small kindness of just mending his clothes. And here's a guy who's got blood on his shoes, who's got a gun in his pocket, and somebody made the effort to get him clean underwear. Now, if you've ever been homeless, as some of us have, clean underwear is a hell of a luxury. So some of the context, right? So again, I'll I'll just briefly mention poor Germ. So yesterday, George R. R. Martin spoke to about half of you in the class, and he talked about, you know, inside the head of each of these people. But one of the things about weaving multiple narratives, and, and again, this is part of what I do, and it, it remains to be seen of whether I've done it effectively or not. The books are here. You want to tell more than one story at once, but you only have one character to tell the story. And you need to do it in such a way that you're tipping your hand. This is both, uh, we call this, I call this Sherlock Bond. It's half James Bond, half Sherlock Holmes. They're mysteries. He wakes up in, in a helicopter his arm is splinted. He's got a woman telling him something. For some of you, how many people here speak more than one language? How many people speak a different language at home than they speak out in public? Okay, so my, my family, my wife and daughter uh, speak to each other in Russian. And so if you know that, anyone here speak Russian? Okay, so then you know what it means when you say someone's full name with patronymic. So that's a cultural nod. And they say it in Ukrainian, which is important, because she starts in Ukrainian, and then they switch to Russian. So this is a very specific Ukrainian context that everyone is Ukrainian gets, because in Ukrainian is family, Russian is business, right? But it tells, it tells everyone, oh, so these are Kiev people, because they speak both Ukrainian and Russian. If they were Western Ukrainian, they would speak Ukrainian and then Polish, right? So you can get really, really tiny and distinct with these contexts. And a lot of this is thought through. Now, if I did my job correctly as a writer, none of that was noticed unless you noticed it. And if I didn't do my job correctly as a writer, it stuck out. You're like, hey, why did they do that? Right? One of the distinctions I had to fight my editors for is he always starts doing measurements in feet and inches. But whenever he gets stressed, it immediately goes to the metric system. This is a very subtle nod for those of you who are European that, you, you know, there's this notion that in your, you, you, you know which language is your true language because you do math in that language, right? But you know what system is your true system because uh, that's where you measure. So do you measure in Celsius and meters or do you measure in miles and Fahrenheit? That tells you who you are. When he's stressed, he goes back to his European roots. And that is a distinction for those people who are paying attention to that, that he's in fact thinking in a different language. And it's a quiet distinction, 
that narratively either kind of you're like oh that's stupid why can they just make it consistent or if you're paying attention because at the end you know there's an o henry kind of twist and then another and another and you have to go back and re-examine it right so this is built like if you will uh inception or memento right it's built on the idea of the unreliable narrator but not in a way that you would expect because one of the things about narrative is your narrator only sees a piece of the picture and what this guy does is he spends a lot of time thinking about how he can only see a piece and what does that mean you see him thinking things through he shares his thoughts with you why am i on a helicopter what has happened why is there a guy with a bruise why did they why did she order them to kill me cuz she, she definitely did something but what is she doing why is this here and from this he's able to deduce something incredibly hard to to understand which is that in fact he's not actually in control of the situation whoever oslo is these are oslo's people now you know my people are oslo's people meaning i'm on a helicopter i thought i was safe and i'm not right these are the kinds of things that you want to convey now it helps if you have the full context but voila welcome to my strange little world so that's all i've got to present the rest is you asking interesting questions making sure your professors know you're physically here and 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 uh and i'm actually happy to answer any question you might have uh, as absurd and bizarre uh whether it's about writing or not okay yes so i very much appreciated the reference especially because my family does speak ukrainian and russian and um i don't speak both unfortunately but um i know what it means to speak russian i know what it means to speak ukrainian I do recognize the difference in the patronymic, but I wonder when you put cultural re- and you have also a lot of cultural references that like if you didn't grow up in America you wouldn't get what you're saying and the way that you play with English you know reveals a lot about how you grew up speaking English and um, it's interesting like I I wonder how much do you worry about releasing your writing to because you're not always reading it aloud so how do you how do you play with like putting in enough that you do get across the meaning you want and then also, you know, you do want it to be kind of effortless and then there are going to be people reading your writing who just don't pick up on the other levels when you reference Dante or you reference something else there are going to be people who never even think about that. All right, so this I'm going to I'm going to first of all excellent question, far more insightful than I would have planned on. And do you like peanut butter, honey or espresso? <laughs> If you're in a, you're in a nexus of decision making here, I want to answer until you pick something. <coughs> Peanut butter. Peanut butter. They're all dark chocolate. Okay. It's proper for, for all slaughter things. Thank you. <laughs> no, no. Thank you. So here's the answer. Shakespeare had it right, right? Like if you're going to rip off, so Stephen King has a really interesting essay where at some point, and I can't like you have to understand. Like I've been hit against walls too many times, so I'm a little addled. So I couldn't remember, you know, whether it was Whitman or, or whoever. Here's the deal. Stephen King wrote a really seminal essay that talks about writing. And one of the things he pointed out is that the greatest writer in the English language did not write novels. He wrote plays. Shakespeare is considered our guy, right? Now maybe you could make some serious arguments that that's no longer true. But English language 101, it's 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 Bill Shakespeare and all of his plays. And he said that he wrote it at a level where the first level is can you follow the action and have fun, right? So the kids in the audience may not get all the dirty jokes, but they sure like the sword fights. So this is constructed at levels. You and I are having a conversation that is very different than you and I are having in the same book. You and I are having a different conversation. I'm having the same conversation with dozens of people at different levels. If I've done it right, as I, I, I used, um, you know, to use the poor Taco Bell analogy, that horrifying seven-layer burrito, I should just tell you people, just so you know, that to pay my bills, I spent an entire year managing Taco Bells in uh, the Boston area, uh, and and that's a whole different story because uh, you want to learn about gang members, you run a Taco Bell in Chelsea. <laughs> and here's the important thing for those of you who are ever going to deal with gang members in Chelsea, which are the Latin Kings, in case you wanted to know. If you give the Latin Kings free soda when you are late with their orders, they will protect your restaurant and no one will steal from you. The other thing you need to know is that the Latin Kings relatives all work for you, right? So all the people who work for me, when I treated them well, that there are no such things as as communities that are only right one thing, right? So 
you live in Boston, you know that one son is a mobster and the other is a cop and the third is a priest. It's a joke, but it's not. I mean, there is some, some really fascinating intersectionality, some really fascinating complex relationships that start to happen. And that starts to inform how deep we go, right? If you've ever had to build a horrifying seven-layer burrito, and I have, right? And you've ever had to, and, and you've got stains from the acid from scrubbing the floors at 3 o'clock in the morning and the scars on it, and then you come back and you have to make another one of these damn things, and another, and another, and another. And you watch people grinding their lives out for $8 an hour. That burrito takes on a whole different context. It's all the wages of sin. It's all the brutality of capitalism. But it's also something that, you know, and something the drug dealers want fast. It's, it's all these things at once. And so you've got layers, but literally you're, you're holding a piece of food, nourishment. You've got money. You've got all this stuff happening. And it has layers. And you start to see that everything you do, if you're thinking as a writer, you got layers and you're like, how do I tell this story? How much do I reveal? Do I not reveal? Now, my father told me there were too many characters. It was too hard for him. And it, when I write the sequel, would I please put less characters in? Because it's really hard to follow everyone, right? As did the um, American Women's Club in Luxembourg when they the book club. The, the ladies who lunch told me that was, you know, not a book they would read, but they really liked the ending, and they were surprised at how nice it all was, right? So what I can tell you is I didn't pull it off perfectly. Um, and the initial reader feedback from the average Joe on the street, if you can consider my father, who's got a Ph.D. in psychology from someplace called UC San Diego, and uh, my, you know, the ladies who lunch who are all probably in the top 1%, if that's the, the, the average reader on the street, they got some, they didn't get a lot of it. But again, I'm writing to write. Uh, you know, do you know why writers write? Because they, they have to, right? And to, do, to not write would be to die. So I wrote what I wanted to write, and I put enough stuff in that I thought I could sell it. And I had a publisher in mind when I wrote this. And that publisher rejected me, even though they were my publisher, and then I sold it to a different press. So, all right. That was excellent question. Next question, yes. Um, so I kind of also really appreciate a lot of like the, the Russian Ukrainian cultural references because that's the background I also come from. Um, so kind of jumping off that, when you are writing you know, an ethnic group or somebody who speaks a different language that you personally aren't as familiar with, where do you think is like a good starting point for you know, you an outsider to sort of start researching it, so you can portray it accurately, but also in a way that other people who are like you and also outsiders can understand. So let me ask you a question, an important question. Yes. Peanut butter, honey, or espresso? Uh, are they all dark chocolate? They are. Okay, good. Uh, let's take the honey. I like how you're thinking. All right, so here's, here's, I'm going to ask you a question, and I can answer your question with a question. Why do you want to write about people you don't know? Why do those people need to be in your narrative? Why are those people there? Because, for example, I know why I put the Ukrainians in, because I'm a Ukrainian Jew, and that's what I'm interested in talking about. And because I created a socially engineered guy, because when I was 10 years old, my parents made the dumb mistake of taking me to Dachau. And at 10, I stared at the ovens where my, you know, my relatives were incinerated. And that made a lasting impression on me that I put in my damn book. I know why everything is there. Now, there are people in there that, that I know. So when I want to write about um, dangerous mobsters, well, I have that too because my grandfather was a mobster, right? But I also had the drug dealers that I you know, used to serve burritos and, and sodas to. And I had all sorts of life experiences. So I, if I don't know them, then and if I really must put them in, so... Aiden and Declan are actual real human beings who are uh, friends of my friend Joseph. They're actually not friends, they're his nephews. And I tuckerized them. I put them in the book because I needed some bros. I don't know anything about bros. I, I, no, no, but I can study them in their native habitat. I can read magazines. <laughs> to some degree, this comes down to, am I responsible to uh, authentically uh, reproduce reality? Uh, and if you're doing a book that's fiction, straight fiction, I think you do. I think you need to really nail it or else what you get is you get a violation of the willing sense of, uh, you know, suspension of disbelief, right? So if you're going to write a straight novel about, uh, you know, uh, man meets woman, has an affair, she has an abortion, there's an aftermath, 
he almost drinks himself to death and finds redemption. You know, just story. You got to get all that stuff right. If you, like me, would prefer to live in a fantasy world so you can make some errors, then at that point, you just, you know, you put it in helicopter gunships and you make the guy genetically engineered. So that way, if you get anything wrong, nobody's going to care because it's an alternative universe. But even there, verisimilitude matters. And so I think that the first decision you need to make is, are you going for your version of the events or are you going for the version of the events? In other words, are you going for a highly subjective view or are you going for the verisimilitude of objectivity? These are way deeper philosophical questions when you start to think about it, because there is no such thing as objectivity, right? And you will reveal what you you really think about something by how you describe it. So this is like the ultimate Rorschach inkblot test, right? You show who you are. Now, um, one of the things that this book is heavy on is technical details. I did a massive amount of research on this. So, for example, there's exactly one kind of gun in the world that is uh, below what we would call the 80 decibel range. So when you fire a handgun, even with a silencer or suppressor, it's really damn loud. However, the Soviet Union made a limited number of something called a PSS, which was a piston-powered subsonic ammunition that used air to fire around 30 feet at a level where if you shot someone, it would only be heard in that room. That's what the thing that she hands them is. Now, I... I happen to have, because I my, spent my first year at UCSD, a pretty heavy science and engineering background, even though that's not what I went into. My parents are scientists. My father's an engineer who still has the pocket protector and the Buster Brown shoes, right? And I think that there's a really good place for that. Kim Stanley Robinson, huge Red Mars, all highly technical, hard science fiction. So how many people here are in, are in sciences, going to stay in the sciences? You know, you have a, a great path. I mean, you you know, you should not consider yourself excluded from writing. And in fact, one thing to consider is, do you want to take that to the next level and incorporate that in? Because that's a world, especially with speculative fiction, where you can take it to the nth level. The great, if you will, prize is hard science fiction or um, hard fantasy. Brandon Sanderson. Any people know Brandon Sanderson? Okay. He basically got challenged to build a, a magic system in fantasy that was logically consistent on every level. And what he's known for is creating a magic system that holds up to scientific scrutiny, right? So those of you who are science people, this is it, right? How much research do you want to do? Everything in this book is pretty well researched or just pulled out of my ass and made up. The question is, can you tell what's what? If you can't tell what's what, I did my job. If you can tell, then you caught me. Some people read books to have gotchas, right? There's a there's a programmer in here from the NSA, uh, and you should, you know, I happen to have a, a cloud security background, uh, so I can I can dig into that, right? I understand what hacking and cracking looks like. I understand what protocols you could and couldn't use. I can spec, but then I speculate, right? Because I've taken us a little into the future. I have an artificial intelligence. There's a there's a whole Turing test passage here. And in fact, there's some really interesting psychological studies involved. I mean, there's a lot of hard stuff in here in terms of hard science, but that's not what the story's about. The story's about Ragnarok versus the apocalypse. The story's about King David's psalm. The story's about what does it mean to be an honorable human being? What does it mean to be Ukrainian as opposed to Russian? What does it mean to, to, to fight one's father, right? Uh, and the, by the way, this book's just full of daddy issues. Major, major daddy issues. Yes. Did your dad pick up on that? You know, thank God he didn't. <laughs> I was really expecting my do- my father to call me and be like, "What the hell?" But to be fair, I did dedicate it to my parents, um, and both my father and my stepmom, both of whom, of course, have doctorates in psychology because that's good for kids. Yes, you right behind. as a career. That's okay. That's a really important distinction. Um, and by the way, I have to ask you a really important question. Do you like espresso or peanut butter? The last and the last. And then we have to go fast because we're running out of time. Here's the deal. I did not get writing as a profession. I started writing when I was fourth grade 
my first novel that I tried to write was Godzilla Goes to Mars. I got a page and a half and discovered that I put Godzilla on Mars. There was nothing else there, and I, I ran out of plot. That was my first novel attempt. Godzilla goes to Mars. He kicks a bunch of rocks. I'm out of material. Damn. But I've been telling stories and writing stories since I was wee high, and it's all I've ever done. When did I decide I wanted to be a writer by profession? I've never decided I wanted to be a writer by profession. I've always paid my way with other jobs, and I've always written. I decided I wanted to be published. And I decided I wanted to be published because I was pissed off at my parents who told me I was a loser and that writing was bullshit and that I should go into the sciences like them because I scored near perfect things on my math SATs and all that other crap. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to have this other life. So to prove mommy and daddy wrong, I was like, I will publish. And then I discovered that's really hard. (laughs) And there's this thing where you have to be really good. And you have to actually do hard work. And I was like, challenge accepted. Let's go. It's on, bitches. And I'm 46 years old. I've published one novel. I have another novel that I just sent out to publishers that's hardcore. It took me seven years to write. I have a third novel that I wrote, which was the first one, which is like 300,000 words that's actually not as horrific as I thought it was, but no one can understand what the hell it is. And I need, I need to get famous enough to get a copy editor who will actually play with it. Great novel at some point, just not now, right? I've probably written 500 short stories in my life, of which uh, a good 100 actually made it to completion. And I have, just so we're, we're clear, three published. Publication is a whole distinction. I am not a professional writer in the sense of I make my living as a writer. I am a writer in my bones. I'll be a writer till I die. And I can't do anything else. It's all I am. One could argue it's genetic in my family. Um, but does that help? Yes. Okay. If you, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you feel like a loser because you didn't write enough, then I'm sorry you have what we have. Right? If, however, what you want to be is famous, there's a lot of better ways to be famous in America. The Kardashians have established an entire route that involves no talent. Right? If you want to be a writer. And I'll tell you something. Like, I'm married to a poet. You can be a poet in three languages. I used to be a poet. Then I met my wife and discovered what real poetry was, and I gave it up. I'm like, I'm done here. Because I don't have the discipline to be a proper poet. I don't. I won't edit a thousand times. I won't carve it till the words are right. Hemingway wrote one of his chapters, I think, um, Farewell to Arms, 27 times in pencil. Right? I mean, you got to understand that that Everything is drafts. Everything is revision. Everything is killing your darlings. All that stuff you hear is not an easy or fun life. And it's worse for poets who have to do it with 300 words for the whole story. I mean, I can have 100,000 or 200,000 words. I can indulge myself. You cannot get a single word wrong if you're building a poem, right? Same thing with a short story. Probably have time for one more. You guys are strangely staying put. Yes. Wait, hold on. Because I've already answered one. Is there anyone else in the room who wants to acquire chocolate or I have a question answered? A very basic question. Yes. Are you right-handed? I am right-handed. Okay. <laughs> the character, um, I mentioned one of the characters taking his hand, but then, then you mentioned that his left was in a splint. So I'm left-handed, so in my mind I had to flip the entire image like you said that line. This character happens to be ambidextrous uh-huh. because he's genetically engineered. <laughs> but it's those fine details right? And one of the things I do do is there's this, you know, do you know the, the origins of Sinister and Dexter? You'll get some espresso beans for that. In fact, let's just, we'll just go for the, 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 the section here. Gentlemen. Espresso, espresso. Alright, so in Dexter is to the right. Sinister is to the left. These are the Latin terms. We know Sinister as evil, and you're not wrong. The left hand also called the left-hand path in the cult, is the path less traveled and also the evil path, the satanic path, or the path of chaos. I mentioned chaos theory. I mentioned Ragnarok. The left-hand path is described in that narrative. Left hand is sinister. It's the evil. It's the wrong. They used to beat you for being left-handed, right? Right hand, Dexter, is the correct path, right? And Dexter actually starts to, to, to build into other words. We have it no longer quite the same. So 
Do I think about Sinister? Yes, I do. Is his left arm in a splint for a reason? Yes, it is. Partially because that was the side he got hit, but partially because then for you, left-handed, we're having a conversation. And if you dig all the way down and you start to see all the analogies, right? If you're going full on Shakespeare at the metaphoric level, I'm taking mythology and Derrida and Foucault and queer theory and the Bechtel test and all this stuff and I'm combining it with my own life experience and you know a helicopter chase and I'm trying to do it so that if you care it's there and if you don't care it's not. If I've done my job really really well you'll read my novel six or seven times and each time you're like dude I didn't realize that was there. Wow those things connect. If I've done it poorly you're like oh my god this is the worst thing I've read how did this guy get published? Why am I not published? And by the way, that's a great reaction. You should go get published. <laughs> right? And then you get to be on that wall outside where they're like the alumni, blah, blah, blah. You know? And, and, and you get fame and fortune. And um, they build, make a TV show out of your life and the whole bit. All right. Anything from this side of the room for those who are mandated? Yes? I just have a question. Uh, timeline from when that was, you know, a helicopter when you first born. I mean, how do you... How do I build it? Beginning to end... I mean, someone say, how long did it take you to do that? Um, okay, so, so it took me an entire year to write the novel. I had This one I had a pretty hardcore process for, and I don't suggest this for everyone. Um, most writers break it into write, edit, write, edit. Very few write and edit at the same time. I do a little bit of editing and, and crafting. My chapters went like this. Every time I wrote a chapter, before I wrote that chapter, I usually went back for the previous chapter or two and did a full copy edit on that. So the first hour or two before I got into writing was hardcore kill everything, right? Chop things out, dishearten myself immensely, and then if I had any creative fire left, write something. So as I begin the chapters, that helicopter chase was written over eight or nine writing sessions, each of which involved me editing the previous things and then building a piece and then building a piece and chopping it out, then building a piece and chopping it out. So... Uh, there's what 12 or 13 chapters in this book I probably took a month to write each one not all the same time because remember I have a day job and so this is a nights and weekends writing uh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean I'm not a prolific writer uh, but um, you know most science fiction fantasy people put out 2,000 words a day that's kind of the, the hardcore like you know I'm a pro uh, I think that when I write I usually write one to five thousand words in a go and then you know but who knows how much of that will survive right so by the time I was done with the last chapter I'd read every single chapter and edited it at least eight or ten times and come through and done that so when I was done and I was done I'd already copy edited the whole book enough that I felt structurally sound my first book I didn't do that I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and wrote you know write it all out and then I'll come back later and edit uh I, one novel, my, the, my baby, something I call Bugbear Blues, uh, which I'm happy to talk to you about afterwards, took me seven years to write. Because that's my version of War and Peace, only it involves bugbears and Jane Austen, because I'm obsessed with Jane. And uh, Austin, Texas, and a few other things. And there's barbecue and sword fights, because why not? And evil elves. But it took me many, many, many years to write, because remember, there's the idea... There's the refining of the idea. There's the writing of it. There's the killing of it because it doesn't work right. There's the refining of that image. But if you can't get an idea right, or if you can't make the characters work, or if you can't get the plot to go, ain't, ain't no doing it. So I, I had one novel I put down for three years, and I just never touched it. right? Because, I mean, I think about it all the time. But I didn't touch it. I worked on other stuff. And then when you finished, then the timeline between when you finished and you were focused on getting it published... And what was that timeline? Next day. Like I, I, I agree with George, who agrees with Heinlein. Like you're always you're always trying to get it published. I wrote the novel to get published. I sent it to my publisher, which was Bain, which is unfortunately um, I don't know. Have you guys watched any of the wars with the Hugo and Worldcon and all that? So Bain is on the Bain is the sad puppies, folks. So my publisher is the right wing sad puppy publisher it's it's John Rambo and his ilk and so I started out working with them because they published my stuff John Bain was still alive they were still military science fiction right I wrote this as their thing and then 
by the time I got there, they were so far right, they weren't going to publish it. It seems got a heavy dose of feminism and queer theory in it. Not exactly Bain's oof, right? But I sent it out. They told me, piss off. And then I started looking for another six months to get a publisher. As it happened, an anthology I was in uh, was uh, subsumed from a corrupt publisher by a new publisher called Ragnarok. I got to know the editor-in-chief. I mentioned, hey, man, I finished this novel, and my publisher just told me to piss off. He said, well, you can send it to me. I'll take a look. He read it, and he said, I'll buy your book. Then it took another year to publish. That was delayed because they fucked up. This book is what's known as a backlist, meaning that they didn't do any of the marketing that they promised me because they just released it. In a year, this will be re-released with a new chapter that they requested. It'll be put on, they'll do a full marketing campaign, and then they'll publish my sequel, right? So I, the, the business of publishing is agonizing in itself, which is a whole different thing, right? So you, what I heard yesterday, and I agree, you write it, with all your heart and soul, and then you spend the rest of the time trying to sell it. Uh, and if you're lucky, you sell it. And if you're not lucky, you don't. But right, and, and that shouldn't delay you from the next book and the next book. Very famous guy, Jim Butcher, Dresden Files, didn't sell his first three novels. It's only when his fourth novel interested the publisher that he had four in a row, okay? I mean, Tolkien, same thing. I mean, you start to talk about these huge luminaries of speculative fiction, you gotta write a lot. You gotta be ready to go. Don't stop writing, just keep doing it. And you know, write really well. Eventually, someone will buy something, and then it goes. That's or not. A really good place to stop. Yes. Thank you so much. Will so, and I'll be here doing nothing but trying to hawk books and hang out. But I'm out of chocolate, so if you wanted chocolate, it's all over. <laughs>